Hello everyone, I'm Rob Riches. And I'm Cheryl Riches, and this is Dead or Survive. So welcome to the third episode. And before we get started, I want to say thank you to a couple of our listeners that have been listening to every episode and been giving us some feedback. So thank you, Darian Rogers. Thank you, Devin Hatt. And thank you, Chris Hessler. It's much appreciated, guys. Please keep the feedback coming back and please keep listening. We appreciate it. Yeah, we're having fun. I hope you are too. So with all that being said and done, let's go over our checklist. You got your wine? I sure do. Got your story? Yep. Let her rip, potato chip. Okay. So this week, I'm going to be talking about a story that I've heard a lot about in the past, and I've sort of known what it was about, but not really. And I thought, this is a good opportunity to delve in there and find out. So how much do you know about the Donner Party? The Donner Party? Yes. I don't think I know anything about the Donner. Oh, well, you're going to now. <laughs> so in 1846, there was. Yeah, a, see, that's why I don't know anything. I wasn't alive. It, yeah, you weren't alive. I wasn't alive either. But I've still heard. You'll maybe once I get into it, maybe you'll have your little memory banks lifted up a little bit, and you go, "Oh, maybe I do know about this." However, in 1846, there was a movement for people to go west. So everybody that was emigrating over from immigrating over from Europe decide that it's time to go west to the land of milk and honey over to California and Oregon. And it'd been 40 years since the Lewis and Clark expedition had happened and tracks were being beaten down. So people were making it easier for the next people behind them to follow the same paths. Um, but the Oregon trail was known as the nation's longest gra graveyard. 10% of the people that tried to make this trek died. The California Trail started in the Independence, Missouri, and crossed 2,200 miles to the coast of California. So just think about you trying to cross the entirety of the United States, no roads, no cars, just you and your wagon full of people and your livestock, and you're all trying to get across 2,200 miles. <laughs> That's a Wednesday here. I live in Canada. <laughs> I have to hike through snow <laughs> with barbed wire wrapped around my feet for traction. <laughs> Needless to say, the journey took months. So it wasn't something that you just took lightly. You had to prepare. You had to get all of your necessities ready. You had to get ready to feed people for months on the road because there's no grocery stores on the way. There's no quick stop gas stations to pick up some chocolate bars and chips. <laughs> Anyways... So George and Jacob Donner were brothers and they both had big families and they decided that they were going to do this trek together. Um, and George, George's wife, Tamsin, planned on opening a girls' school once reaching their destination. So she had big plans and they were joined by a man named James Reed and his family. And James Reed had recently declared bankruptcy, but with a little help from Abraham Lincoln, Yep, that Abraham Lincoln. He had managed to stow some money away so that when he got there, he'd be able to buy some land in California and make a brand new start. So apparently this was before the theater night? <laughs> this was. Actually, 
Abraham Lincoln very seriously considered making this journey, but he didn't, and it's probably a very lucky thing. History would have probably been not the same as it is today. Um, travelers would ideally leave Independence in the middle of April. This way, their livestock would have enough grasses to eat along the way, and there'd be no snow, so travelers would have easier pathway. They had to cross the Sierra Nevadas, which is a big mountain range. And if they didn't get there early enough, then there would be snow covering this mountain range and it would make it impassable. Boo-hoo, impassable because <laughs> of snow. <laughs> Canada! <laughs> but the Donner Party, for whatever reason, they didn't leave Springfield, Illinois until April 15th. And that's 300 miles away from where they needed to be. In, on, in the middle of April. So by the time they got to Independence, it was actually May 12th. So they're a whole month behind. Probably because of the women. <laughs> no, I don't think it was because of the women. I don't think women had women. much say. I think the men were like, okay, we're going this day. And the women were like, okay, we're going this day. <laughs> no, they were probably not doing what <laughs> they, they were, were supposed to. They were probably like, see, I told you we should have left earlier. Yeah, right. Uh, so when they get to Independence, they meet up with a larger group of wagons and they set out. And the larger group is probably like, what took you guys so long? We've been waiting. It was our wives. <laughs> so they make it to Fort Bridger in Wyoming by July. And at this point, they're making great time. They're covering 18 to 20 miles a day. And in Fort Bridger, they decided that they were going to take a shortcut known as the Hastings Cutoff. And the reason that they were going to do this is because they had read about the Hastings cutoff in a guide that was published by a guy named Lansford Hastings. And it was called The Emigrant's Guide to Oregon and California. And it claimed to shave 300 miles and up to a month of travel off. James Reed had talked to an experienced mountain man named James Kleiman, and he said, don't take that shortcut saying it was bare, barely passable on foot, never mind with wagons and livestock. And Hastings had never even taken the cutoff himself, but they decided to take it anyways. So I kind of picture like Hugh Glass, remember him from episode one? I kind of picture that guy, sort of like that guy going, don't take this, don't do that thing. And they're like, oh, we're going to do that thing anyways. And he was like, well, okay, but it's your funeral. You know what my best part about the whole thing that you just said was? What? Your voices. <laughs> Don't do that. Do that. Don't do that. So they did that thing. You ever thought about doing any voice work like <laughs> on speakers or something? No. You should try to do a podcast or something. So 87 people chose to take this course, and they elected George Donner as their captain. And they left Fort Bridger on July 31st. This shortcut, the Hastings cutoff, quickly became more difficult than expected. In fact, the party had to build themselves a road when they got to the Wasatch Mountains. So they had to like knock trees down, move things out of the way, and build a road to get through this pass. It took 16 days for the wagon train to move 36 miles, but they did eventually get the, across the Wasatch Mountains. I'm probably saying that wrong, and I apologize, by August 22nd. But now they had to cross the 80-mile-wide Salt Lake Desert. So picture that now. <laughs> At least there's no snow. This is true. But it's a desert. And there's no water to be had and it, all those deserty things. And at one point, um, Reed's Cattles, 
stampeded in the middle of the desert and they take off everywhere and they lose a week trying to collect all of his cattle back together. Well, it's because it's a salt lake. They're probably out licking salt everywhere. <laughs> probably. <laughs> Just imagine being in the desert and like watching a cow walk by <laughs> with nobody else in sight. That would be trippy. Travelers lost four wagons and lots of critical supplies in the desert. And they, so they sent two men ahead to bring back supplies. By September 26, the party had finished the shortcut and rejoined the California Trail. Were they ahead or behind? But, okay, so the shortcut had actually added 125 miles to their journey, and they lost three weeks of time. And now they're the last group of people on the trail. On October 5th, two wagon teams got tangled together while they're climbing a hill. And James Reed lost his shit. He has an argument with the guy that they're tangled together with, and he ends up stabbing the other guy to death. So they said, okay, James Reed, you can't be with us anymore. You're banished. And they kicked him out. But his family got to stay. So they were like, bye, Dad. We're just going to keep going to California. You do whatever. You murderer, you. Um, on October 8, 19th, one of the guys that they sent ahead, Charles Stanton, rejoined the group along with two Indigenous Americans from the Miwok tribe. In the last week of October, the Donahue party made it to present-day Reno, Nevada. They could see the Sierra Nevada mountains had already got snow cover on them. So to reduce strain on their exhausted animals, they got rid of most of their belongings by throwing it away or burying it and kept only the bare essentials. Now it's October 31st and the party reaches Truckee Lake. Spoiler alert, it's not called Truckee Lake anymore. It's called Donner Lake. So Stanton and the two Miwok tribe members scouted ahead and they said, we should keep going. But everybody was as, else was like, no, we're tired. Let's spend the night here at the lake. That night, a storm came and dumped a bunch of snow. So they wake up in the morning and they're like, well, what are we going to do? There's snow everywhere. Well, they attempted to press on, but the snow was too deep. So they were like, okay, well, we should turn around. But they couldn't turn around because it kept on snowing. It just snowed and snowed. So they couldn't even go back the way that they had come. So now they build some shelters and they just, they get ready to spend the entirety of the winter in the Sierra Nevada mountains. And they're only a hundred miles from their destination, but they have not nearly enough supplies. They have their livestock, a little bit of food that they might've had left, but they were only a hundred miles away. So they probably didn't have a whole lot of that left and they have an entire winter to live. On November 20th, one of the party, Patrick Breen, started a journal because the situation is getting dire. So he had nothing else to do. He's going to start writing a journal. And he wrote, we have now killed most of our cattle, having to stay here until spring and live on poor beef without bread or salt. It snowed during the space of eight days with little intermission after our arrival here. Nine days later, Breen wrote another journal entry and it said killed my last oxen today we'll skin them tomorrow gave another yoke to fosters hard to get wood so why don't you might be thinking why didn't they hunt or fish well they had no traps to catch animals and most of the animals had headed to lower elevations for the winter plus they did try to fish the lake the frozen lake but they had no success by december they estimated the snow to be eight feet deep 
That's still a Wednesday in Canada. (laughs) Eight feet deep, but they can't just plow it out and go to the grocery store. Um, At this point, they decided to send a rescue party out. So on December 16th, they send 15 people out on homemade snowshoes in search of civilization, led by Stanton and the two Miwok natives. The party would become to known as the Forlorn Hope Party. So that is a good name to have. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's the name I want. Well, I'm going yeah. By December 21st, the party was out of food and Stanton had gone snow blind. So his corneas actually got sunburnt. So he couldn't even see where he was going. He's the leader of this little rescue party, but he can't see. So Stanton sits down on a log, smokes a pipe, and tells the others to go ahead. That's awesome. I can't see. Don't know where we're going. Tell this down. Have a smoke. Rescuers would later find his bones. That's why you don't smoke, children, if you're listening to this. That's what happens, okay? Smoking is bad. It leads to, like, being a pile of bones. By December 24th, one of the men was about to die, and he pulls his two daughters in close and says, when I die, I want you to eat me. And the girls are obviously horrified by this, but he died. So on December 26th, the daughters ate their dad. They didn't want to look at each other while they did it, and they cried the whole time. But yep, they ate their dad. The two Miwok tribe members are looking at the rest of these people eating a person and going, this is fucked up. We're out of here. And they abandon. (laughs) They leave them. (laughs) And... Uh, on January 9th, William Foster tracked them down, found them, and shot them so that they could eat them. So that's what this they did. This is getting like really wild now. <laughs> How is anybody surviving this? You know, your story is the survival one, right? It is. It is the survival story. Three days later, the remaining of the se- the remaining seven members of the Forlorn Hope group reach a Miwok village. I'm sure they didn't say, hey, you remember those guys? Yeah, we ate them. They just said, we need help. So the Miwok, being the nice people that they were, helped them out and helped them reach a pioneer settlement at Johnson's Ranch. Meanwhile, the rest of the Donner Party are still snowbound in the mountains. The oxen and the horses are now long gone. The settlers have boiled their hides. So they're basically boiling their hides and eating like a leather jello. Yeah, doesn't that sound appetizing? Well, they still make jello out of bones nowadays, don't <laughs> yeah, they? Yeah, but it's just like boiled leather. Well, I've had some of your cooking. <laughs> oh. <laughs> they cracked open bones to eat the marrow. They ate dogs and mice. And when they couldn't get their hands on that, they ate pine cones and bark. One guy lost his mind, stripped naked, and started running in the snow and died of hypothermia. See, we call that a Saturday night in Canada. <laughs> These guys, though, back in the mountains, they haven't eaten people yet. So we'll give them that. On February 19th, the rescue party of seven men reached the lake. One of the rescuers wrote, quote, we raised a loud hello. Then we saw a woman emerge from a hole in the snow. As we approached her, several others made their appearance. They were gaunt with famine. And I never can forget the horrible, ghastly sight that they presented. The first woman spoke in a hollow voice, very much agitated, and said, Are you men from California, or do you come from heaven? The rescue party could only take 23 of the trapped, including 17 children, to safety. But more deaths happened on the way back. They sent a second rescue party out. They didn't get there until March 1st, and it was 
led by James Reed, you know, that guy that stabbed somebody to death. And they took back another 17 of the survivors. And again, more people died on the way back. A third rescue party came back with William Foster, you know, the guy who killed the Miwok natives. He asked where his son was, and Lewis Keesberg told him that he had eaten him. The third. <laughs> Sorry about that. I know we're supposed to watch him and stuff. Don't worry, I'm not going to charge you for the babysitting costs. That's on me. So, yeah, now we're officially into cannibalism in the mountains as well. The final rescue party arrived on April 17th when they found George Donner with his head split open to provide access to his brain. A kettle of diced up human flesh sat next to three frozen and uneaten ox legs and two other kettles of blood in a pan of containing, containing human lungs and liver were nearby. And the only person who was still alive was William Keysburg. You know, the guy who ate the kid. Keesberg claimed that all the other people died naturally, and when they asked why he hadn't eaten the ox legs, he said, frankly, the humans tasted better. Ew. <laughs> yep, that was a thing. So for the survival part of this podcast, because this I am the survival story, I'll tell you that 47 people of the Donner Party did survive. They made their way to California, and they established themselves, and a lot of their descendants are still in the area. And that is the Donner Party. Wow. So, first of all, don't let your women make you late. And second of all, forget about shortcuts. That's yeah, what we're learning. Don't Which was probably 100% on the men. Why? Oh, yeah, I know a shortcut. I've yeah. got them plenty of time. I don't need a map. Why stop maps for directions? Yeah. I got this. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty interesting. Good story. And then that lake's named after him as well. Yep, it is now called the Donner Lake. Which I don't think if that's the way to get something named after me, I don't think I want it. Yeah, how many people do you have to eat to get a lake named <laughs> yeah. after you? All right. Well, for mine today, I'm doing something a little close to home. Oh, how close? A couple hours away. Oh, really? Yes. Not that Canadians are stupid or do things stupid, but we do risk our lives for no. silly reasons once in a while. So, in 1995, a particularly daring daredevil named, of course, Johnny. Hi, Johnny. <laughs> decided to attempt something no one had ever done before. He's going to ride his jet ski off of Niagara Falls. No. Yeah, he is. I don't, I, why did, haven't I never heard of this before? I don't know. You don't read all the great novels that I read. <laughs> I guess. You just figure it would have been like newsworthy events. I guess I would have been a lot younger. 1995? Uh, you would have been 20. No, 19. Oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> don't round up that one year. 19! <laughs> Anyways, Niagara Falls is nice and close to where we actually live. So uh, for people out there listening, it's about two hours away. Our daughter actually lives in St. Catharines, which is pretty close to... <laughs> Yep. Um, Niagara she, Falls. So she can practically see the falls from her back door. <laughs> yeah. So and she also works right in Niagara Falls. So we, so the whole the reason why I'm telling you all this is we know Niagara Falls. So we know what it looks like, and uh, it's one of the wonders of the world uh, because of the size of the falls and stuff. So for you know, uh, also while I'm going through this, I did a little research. It's an estimated five thousand bodies were found 
at the foot of the falls between 1850 and 2011. Jesus, 5,000. They estimate 40 people are killed each year when they are swept over the falls. We never hear about this shit. Yeah, I know. And out of the 40, it is suggested that 20 to 30 of those may be suicides. But because of the tourism, the city hides it. Oh, they don't tell you about everything just that's like going Disney on. World, same as Disney World. So Johnny uh, taking a jet ski off of Niagara Falls might sound completely stupid, but before you judge Johnny, he did do some planning. He fitted his jet ski with a rocket booster. <laughs> I don't even know what to say to that. <laughs> you don't have to say anything. It was a rocket booster. Where did he get a rocket booster? I don't know. Just Home Depot. <laughs> and. He was also carrying a parachute. Oh, boy. The idea was to fire the booster as he hit the falls at the very edge, and then he would go launching into the air, and then he would pull on the string and open his parachute at the apex of his flight. You like the word apex? Yeah. <laughs> Can I just say that if it had have worked, that would have been incredible. Yeah. And after his parachute opened up, he would drift down to safety softly in the water below. Except the parachute would have got filled with water and dragged him around. Think. Now, this all sounded good, but a little thing that Johnny forgot about is something you just mentioned. Niagara Falls is water. <laughs> and water makes things wet. Yes. Yes. So, as he hurled towards the falls and pressed the button... His utterly soaked rocket booster failed to ignite. Oh, my. Now, don't worry, because remember, Johnny had a parachute. Yeah. So it doesn't matter, right? He's got his say, ah, didn't work. I am going to pull my rope and release my parachute. And it failed. Do you know why it failed? Why did his parachute fail? Because it wasn't waterproof. Oh, my God. So, yeah, he decided to jump over the falls with... A non-waterproof parachute as his backup. And a non-waterproof rocket launcher. Well, the rocket it? launcher, I can kind of, you know, I mean, boat engines maybe a little bit. But, I mean, I would think I would really be going out and saying, hey, I need a waterproof parachute. I think, at this I point, they might say, what are you planning on doing with a parachute in the rain? Regardless, at the end of it all, poor Johnny received his shiny Darwin Award. Well... It still amazes me, though, that people go over and survive. So here's a little history facts I did for you. The first person, I know I'm tiptoeing into your survival area, but maybe <laughs> you want to take a little deeper dive. But the first person to go over and survive was not even a daredevil or a performer. Do you know what she was? A child? No, she was a, she was a widowed teacher, Annie Edison Taylor. She was struggling financially, so she thought by going over the falls, she would be famous and make money. She used an old oak barrel and put some cushion on the inside of it. And the best part of all this, you're going to love this. Do you know how she tested it? How? She shoved a cat inside. Oh, my God. Oh, that it up poor cat. And threw it in the water. <laughs> what? 20, what did the cat ever do? 29 minutes later, there was the kitty. And uh, what did it say? <laughs> the traumatized cat survived. <laughs> so, of course, the cat survived. So, Annie's like, if a cat can do it, I can do it. Wow. So, she wow. Uh, she set everything back up. 
And on October 24th, 1901, on her 63rd birthday, Jesus. she hopped in that barrel like and survived. Falling on the ground could break her hip. And she's going to go <laughs> over the falls in a barrel? Yep. It was a decade, or, decade later that Bobby Leach became the first man to survive the falls in a custom barrel. After he turned the uh, experience into a successful tour, okay? Yes. So remember this. This guy built a barrel. Yes. Went over the falls. Right. Survived. Uh-huh. Made it into a successful tour business. So he did this more than once is what you're telling me? No. Oh. No, we only did it once, but it's successful business, all this stuff. Right. Do you know how he died? How? He slipped on an orange peel in 1926. Oh, my God. If it was a banana peel, it would have been like every cartoon I watched as a child. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, yep, survived the falls, died by an orange peel. Anyways, wow. just thought I would give you guys a little history. <laughs> and, of course, as we know, I'm extending my Darwin Award, so I'll go into number two. Okay. So, Darwin Award number two. Have you ever heard this, this the joke about Chuck Norris and the Cobra? Yes, I have heard okay. it, but you should tell it for people who haven't well, heard it. Well, for people that haven't heard it, this is the way it is. Chuck Norris was walking through the desert when he comes across the cobra. The cobra attacked Chuck Norris. Well, Chuck, Chuck Norris knew a little bit of karate, so he took on the snake. But the snake, the snake still managed to bite him. But slowly and painfully, after three long days in the desert, the cobra finally died. <laughs> still a great one. Well, Johnny... Must have thought he was Chuck Norris. Oh, boy. So, well, Johnny was over at his buddy's house, and they were drinking and having a great time. Johnny's friend had several snakes, and most of them were poisonous. So, Johnny... Okay, why did Johnny's friend have poisonous snakes? Because he likes collecting snakes. What's wrong with collecting snakes? (laughs) Okay, snakes is one thing. Did we not have a snake? It was not poisonous. You don't know that. He could have been. He was a garter snake. Well, he looked mean. (laughs) He didn't even. He stuck his tongue out me every day. He He didn't even have little teeth. He was was cute. Okay. Anyways, (laughs) people collect things, okay? Okay. And he collected snakes. Okay. Back off of Johnny's friend. (laughs) So Johnny's friend is stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. But Johnny's friend... Thought that he could start messing around with the poisonous snakes and press his luck. And his friend said, you probably shouldn't do that. But no, Johnny kept doing it. And soon enough, of course, one of the snakes bit him, injecting oh, venom duh. into his wrist. <laughs> but Johnny's friend, and this was actually his, or Johnny's friend said, let's go to the hospital now. And Johnny, actual quote, said, I don't need to go to the hospital. I'm a man. I don't need the hospital. Oh, my God. So I know people in my life who would say things like that. <laughs> so uh, the friend said, cool. And off to the bar they went. And they went out drinking and having a great time and um, doing all these other things for several hours until finally, yep, Johnny died and received his new shiny Darwin Award. Wow. That is just, you know what, though? I bet he was incredibly high. Oh, probably just <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. everything, right? Yeah. But you think alcohol is a blood thinner. Like you would think it would make you. Oh, make yeah, it. but he, it's, it's still all inside of him. It's not. Well, I know, but you think the venom would go through yeah. faster. Like you yeah. didn't think it would take several hours. That's true. So anyways. It take a long time. I got thinking about this. 
again, a little more history because I'm getting a little more informative while I'm doing these things. <laughs> little hoity-toity. So I thought, how often do people actually die from a snake bite? It's got to be pretty rare, right? I mean, really, we have venom or we have uh, antibodies out there, all these things, yeah. or antivenoms, thank you, all that stuff. So I guess, uh, so I looked it up. Guess how many people die worldwide in a year? From snake bites. From snake bites. Mm, 125. 81,000 to 138,000. <laughs> That's mostly in rural and impover um, impovertized areas. In, in, impoverished thank you areas and that's according to the who so worldwide health organization wow yeah, i got this article off of global another four hundred thousand people are left permanently injured with amputated limbs blindness and other severe disabilities wow. from venom. yeah that's crazy Isn't that wild? you see those youtube videos of people like smacking the top of cobra's heads and stuff and yeah. they could lose a limb from doing that or their life but yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. So anyways, fear not, though. I got a little paranoid after that and checked out Canada. <laughs> yes. Only about 100 people get bit by snakes a year and no deaths. Move yeah. to Canada. We have <laughs> snow, but we don't die from snakes. Lots of snow. <laughs> <laughs> well, my love, that is the stories for me for the week. So now it's your favorite part of the podcast. Okay, but let's first hit on our things that we need to hit on. If you have any survival stories, any near Darwin stories, or you know of anybody that you want to tell us about from your hometown, your high school, whatever, write us at debtorsurvivepodcast at gmail.com. Also, you can follow us on Instagram at debtorsurvive, or we have a Facebook page as well. So all of these things, if you can subscribe to our podcast, that would be lovely. Or Please follow do. us or tell other people about it. Or put up posters and banners and buy airplanes and fly the banners behind them. All that stuff. Okay, here it is. This is your moment. You like it. <laughs> you know you like it. I do like it. Okay, so here you go. You ready? I am ready. I'm not ready. I forgot. Oh, yes, there it is. Where do pirates get their hooks from? I don't know where pirates get their hooks from. Secondhand store. Oh. <laughs> With that, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> have yourself a good night. Again, thank you, everybody, for listening. We're having a blast. I hope you are, too. Bye.